Thanks for joining us on our U.S. Soccer President Candidate Forum Series. I'm Justin Brunken with the American Outlaws, and our goal is to help foster positive change for the Federation and U.S. Soccer by giving the candidates a platform to talk to and listen to our members, the fans. These forums are only possible because of our members' support. So feel free to become a member yourself, if you aren't already, at theamericanoutlaws.com. Visit our election page at voao.theamericanoutlaws.com forward slash ao dash election dash center. Yeah, I know it is a tad long, but it's where you can uh, see candidate questionnaires and the schedule for all the rest of the live forums. We'll see you at the next game in the stands. Listen and see if they address your issues and thoughts. Thanks and enjoy. Welcome to the second in our series of live forums we are holding with the candidates for president of the U.S. Soccer Federation. We thank all of you who are able to tune in tonight. My name is Donald Wine, and I am the host as we get to know candidate Kyle Martino and his position on several key issues U.S. soccer is facing, as well as the fan experience. Before I introduce Kyle, a bit of housekeeping. If you want to submit a question uh, to Kyle tonight, there is a Q&A box uh, on your right-hand side. Please include your name and the chapter that you represent and submit to all panelists. That way we will be able to read them and we will be able to uh, get to as many of them as we can. We apologize in advance if we don't get to your submission tonight. Our questions are going to focus on a number of topics that were generated either from our member survey that we sent out back in November or uh, questions based on issues that face our organization, and the overall fan experience. We will not address topics that have been the focus of other candidate forums you may have seen out there. Instead, we're going to focus on fan-driven and fan-generated issues that other forums may be avoiding. With that, I'd like to introduce our candidate this evening, Kyle Martino. Kyle is a former U.S. men's national team player, uh, a part owner of Real Mallorca, and is an analyst for NBC Sports Premier League coverage. Kyle, Thank you so much for joining us tonight, and you now have the floor for a brief opening statement. Well, thank you, Donald, and um, I really want to start by thanking the American Outlaws, um, <clears throat> not only for everything you've, do, you've done to help grow the game, but um, players on the field and, and executives in a boardroom do not make this game the fans do. We'd be nothing without you, and I, I appreciate the fact that you have uh, championed the process of getting to know candidates. Of, of looking for and, and asking for change, but the right type of change. Um, we're at an inflection point. We absolutely are at an inflection point in our game's history. And uh, whether it be through fans, players, or board members, the game has come a long way since the one I fell in love with when I was a little kid. But I think that we have to really be honest about the fact that there is a natural inertia about this game. It's the greatest game on the planet. And we capitalize uh, on the fact that whether it be through surplus or attendance or other things that are used as a metric to try and demonstrate progress, we have been really lucky that this game has the gravitational pull that it does on fans. And that's not to diminish the accomplishments of anyone, but what it is is 
we need to, to really understand that we could be a lot further along right now with the, light, the right leadership. And, and failing to qualify for the World Cup, it, it, it feels big. It's heartbreaking. And um, I was there with the, the uh, Manhattan chapter of the American Outlaws watching it in New York City. Uh, it was one of the rare occasions where I got to be a fan again and I was off the clock. And I was heartbroken right there with everyone else. But I, I think most of the people in that room realized what I did in the aftermath that that's not the problem, um, that that is a symptom of the problem. The problem is that, that U.S. soccer has, it, it's missed the big picture. It thinks the big picture is the top of the pyramid, when in reality, the success and the health of the top of the pyramid uh, comes from a focus, an investment, and an understanding of how we grow soccer culture at the bottom of the pyramid. And I think that the fans of American Outlaws are a perfect example of when a couple of crazy guys say that we love this game and they get together and realize that there are many of us across this country, the power of mobilization and galvanization is a force that's unstoppable. And if we have a leader that believes in that, I really think that the sky's the limit for the game in this country. That's great. I, I want to begin tonight's discussion. Uh, we were going to talk a lot about the men, but I want to begin with the women's national team first. Uh, they have a match coming up next week. Obviously, this is a huge year for them as they begin uh, World Cup qualifying for their cycle. Uh, obviously, big debate surrounding them over the last year has been around pay equity uh, and whether they should be paid the same as the men. And how would that structure work? What does pay equity look like for you? And would you structure it based on the revenue generated by U.S. soccer? No, I wouldn't. Um, I don't think it's fair to uh, use that as a as a calculation because there is there is um, systemic sexism in the fact that the reason that the calculation favors the men is in large part due to the lack of investment in the women's game. So um, I don't think about our national teams and, and, and split them in gender. I will go about trying to establish pay equality uh, by looking at them as national team members. I mean, we forget that our women are World Cup winners, and we need to treat them like World Cup winners and not second-class citizens. Now, uh, there are collective bargaining agreements in place for both national teams. They expire at different times. One thing I want to investigate to accomplish this is to uh, try to negotiate one collective bargaining agreement. Now, I, I know that there are challenges to that based on the different tournament schedules and time periods, and uh, there are different interests and issues that affect each group differently. But there are a lot of men, I promise you, because I was in that locker room, I, uh, I still stay in touch with a lot of these players that want pay equity. They, they want the women to earn the same that they're earning. They believe they deserve it, and we all know they deserve it. So there is an in interest to try and create this, and um, I really am going to investigate, and I've, and I've reached out to uh, the different players' unions to try and get their feedback and figure out if it's feasible and if there's an efficacy to creating one player's union that negotiates one CBA, and then we can leverage the, the uh, desire of the men to share the profits equally and understand that one of the reasons we are a successful soccer nation has to do with the fact that our women are the Brazil, are the Argentina, are the Spain on the women's side. But if you ask a lot of the women, they'll tell you, that they're really upset, and, and this isn't my opinion, this is me being a, a voice for them. They're upset that their success keeps being used to paper over cracks, and, it, and it's used to uh, try and demonstrate progress. But if you look at the youth game on the women's side, there is a bubble that's about to burst, and the reason it's going to burst is because 
we've gotten complacent. And um, the Mia Hams, the Michelle Akers, the Julie Foudy's, uh, it's it's becoming more difficult to to develop players that are of that ability, that have that chemistry, that cohesion that we enjoyed in 1999. And that's not to say we still don't have the, the Carly Lloyds and the Abby Wambachs and the, the Alex Morgans coming behind them. But it's to say that other countries have caught up and are surpassing us because Title IX gave us a mechanism to focus on women's sports before other countries. And that's a good thing. But uh, we need to continue to be a vanguard in that space. And I think the way we do it is by not only competitively saying that we will give our women the same pay, the same field, the same plane, the same hotel that our men get, but we will also, as a statement, use sport to make a very big cultural statement that right now our, our women's national team are not women. They are national team players. And our board, our executive uh, um, staff, will be gender neutral as well. And we will look like a federation that understands that gender is not a qualification for your pay or for your position. Keeping along those lines, we'll, we'll get to uh, the men's side in a second, but uh, scheduling women's national team matches on turf fields has been obviously a concern over the last three years. Uh, how will US soccer under your presidency decide on venues for the uh, women and will venues of turf still be in consideration? Um, the the, the, the um, advancements in that technology are improving, but uh, uh, pardon me for just being a purist. The game needs to be played on grass, and um, it increases the, the injury rate. It makes it a, a more difficult game to play in many occasions. Um, and if we cannot lay grass over the turf, then that can't be a venue that our women play. And not just laying any, any sod down. Sometimes laying sod down over turf makes it a, a more dangerous game and a more difficult uh, game to enjoy the skill that our national team has. Um, I want to I, I watch uh, Tobin Heath on beautiful grass so she can show us how incredibly skillful she is. And every time... I watch a game where she's playing, and uh, and uh, Kelly O'Hara recently had a beautiful nutmeg that I tweeted, and and you know it makes it a little more difficult to try to do that on turf. And um, listen, I understand there are weather requirements that make it difficult to have games at certain times of a, a year on natural surfaces, but if we're doing it for our men, we need to do it for our women. Uh, I want to switch a little bit to development, and we have our first member question of the evening is from Matt from New Haven. And Matt writes, where does the high school game play a part in the U.S. system in your eyes? And I'll add to that uh, the college game as well. So um, people ask me this a lot. And the question when the DA was created became a loaded one because of the, the decision that was taken away from some of these young players. Some of my greatest memories um, were on the high school field. And some of my greatest memories were playing for University of Virginia and some seriously contested ACC finals and and to be honest um, I needed that I needed that that step before the professional level and um, I had to go abroad to play for Benfica before I went to University of Virginia and it's easy to play devil's advocate try to wonder what I would have been if I uh, took that opportunity but I have no regrets I, I I enjoyed my soccer experience and I know the beauty of our country is that there are many different ways to develop a player and the high school game the college game have a role to play because 
you, you can't pick winners at a young age. It's actually one of the biggest mistakes we're making is professionalizing the game at too young an age. And that's creating market confusion and stress for parents. It's raising the cost. And it's, and it's, and it's having kids drop out of the game before we really have a chance to know what they're capable of. A good buddy of mine, um, Steve Nash, is actually a fantastic soccer player if he decided to go that route. He didn't start basketball when he was 13 years old and became a two-time uh, NBA MVP. You, you, you don't know what someone's capable of until you give them an opportunity. And opportunities come for late bloomers in high school, in college. And instead of trying to make those levels obsolete, we need to empower them and show that it is absolutely a way you can develop a player. Because we are the size of Europe, and there, there are only half of the states in our country that have development academies. So there, there are people not served by that structure. And one of the ways that you, that you develop players and one of the ways that you develop passion is by having an affinity for the team you play for. I promise you, I've lost uh, cup finals. I've lost national team games. I've lost World Cup qualifiers. Nothing truly hurts like losing to your high school rival in front of your home fans. And so there's something incredibly powerful in that. We can't let that become extinct. I want to go to Europe for a second. And this is something that's come up uh, a lot over the last couple of weeks uh, with regards to player movement to Europe and the fact that they may not be able to do that before they turn the age of 18. Yeah. While that worked for some, it may, it may work for others like Christian Pulisic as a, as a prime example. Uh, other continents have agreements in place with European leagues that allow their players to freely compete in Europe without the use of a work permit, which has been proven difficult for us to get, as you may know, especially in England. Yeah. What strides would you take to make more opportunities and create more opportunities for American players, youth especially, to play in Europe? Well, listen, as an owner of Real Mallorca, I promise you that I'm looking in this market for, for players that can contribute to getting us promoted to the Segunda Division. So um, I was a player that had to wait until – I was 27 years old and finally got my Italian passport and went over on my first trial uh, with a realistic opportunity to, to get a, a position over there and assuage their concerns that I wouldn't be able to get a work permit. Now, at that point, I was a terrible ankle injury and two hip, hip surgeries past my prime, and it, 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 it was too long. And what we need to do right now is have the humility to admit we are not as good as the option abroad for some kids. Now, that's not to say that going abroad is right for everyone. And I'll give you two examples. Two players I played with that I uh, have a great friendship with and respect a lot that were incredibly talented, Clint Dempsey and Eddie Johnson, that came from similar backgrounds and similar time in our soccer nation, uh, both found success domestically, which gave them an opportunity abroad. One went to Fulham, and it jump-started an incredible international career that continues to be one of the best American soccer careers we've ever seen. Another almost ended a player's soccer career permanently when Eddie Johnson came back from Fulham and was discouraged and, and almost walked away from the game. So going abroad isn't right for everyone. But I think Christian Pulisic said some hard truths that everyone needs to listen to, and I give him credit for a young kid saying something that was going to get him some criticism. We have not created a commensurate opportunity here uh, to the one at Borussia Dortmund, at Ajax, at Barcelona, at Manchester United, at a lot of these other clubs. And why would we pretend that we have? Their head start, their culture, their resources, there's no way we can offer what they can offer. But that doesn't mean we can't offer something. So I think we need to stop having a chip on our shoulder and pretending 
that we are we are at that level. We absolutely are not. But that that doesn't have to be in a pejorative way. That that doesn't have to be an insult. We we have created uh, professional leagues here that provide opportunities for players to grow, to develop, and either move on to the national team or abroad. Uh, college, as I was just saying, is another opportunity. You know, some of the best players we produce, Claudio Reyna, went to college for four years, right? So um, we can still develop top talent, but if we want to start developing a high ratio of this top talent, we have to work on creating a commensurate development league here and a product here that can pre pre prepare players at that teenage level for the enormous leap to being a first-team player or a national team player. Now, we're not there yet, and that's okay. So the option abroad is one we should actually encourage for a lot of these players. And I think once we realize that La Liga and Bundesliga and Serie A and Premier League are not competition, we are all soccer fans, and these are soccer leagues. Watching our players play there might feel to some like we've lost a player. I, I don't look at it that way. I, I enjoy watching Christian Pulisic play every weekend just like – I enjoy sitting and watching uh, Darlington Nagby play every weekend. For me, it feels the same way. So um, I, I just think we need to take a step back, have a bit of humility and self-awareness and say we're not there yet, which we shouldn't be discouraged about, but it should, it should encourage us to promote players going abroad if it's the right thing for them and build an opportunity here where one day the choice is a lot harder or it's, it's tipped in our favor. Staying in Europe, and apologies in the background as the vice president makes his way past my apartment home. Um, I, I want to do another uh, staying in Europe. There's another question from a member, Bryn from AO Minneapolis. And she writes, I know in Germany they have a 50 plus one rule for uh, club members to maintain majority ownership. And she's asking about the ownership structure of MLS, and if that's something that you would consider for that league or others in America. Well, listen, I think what's happening with Columbus right now is a perfect example of if that existed, I don't think Columbus would be moving. So, um, you know, it is a business and we can talk about the pros and cons of the business. And I think we've reached not only an inflection point in our soccer nation in terms of how our federation is run and, and how we're governing, but, but in terms of are we at diminishing returns with the model we've created for our professional leagues? Is it harming development and the product in our other professional leagues um, in a way it didn't in the past? And I think if you look at Columbus, you can say if you're a, a emotion, if you take emotion out of it and you're a businessman, you could say, listen, a business person would look at certain measurements and say there is a, there is a, a market where we can grow ticket revenue and and uh, and ratings and, and other things that move certain verticals that increase profits. But Columbus gave me my dream. So I'm sorry if I have a soft spot uh, for them, but they, they took a chance on a scrawny kid with long hair that uh, got, got to play professional soccer for a living. And since I was a tiny kid in my backyard doing the commentary for my own goals in World Cup finals and breaking windows, I, I dreamed to one day do what Columbus crew made possible for me. Not only did they do that for me and others, um, but, but we've seen our national team go and have tremendous success at that stadium. Dos Zero was born there. So it, it is a founder and an integral part and a, a, a thread in our cultural fabric that I don't want to see die. And I, and I believe that if we didn't have such a imbalance, if there wasn't this disparity between profit motive and growing soccer cultures, we would find a solution to keep Columbus there 
and work together with the municipal leaders and the, the ones who want to provide answers and solutions to grow that market, grow that team and keep them there. I think as she was suggesting, if we adopted some of the models abroad, which by the way, Leicester is one of the greatest sports stories of all time. That's not possible without fans. Fans show up to save teams that almost go bankrupt. And that's why supporters trust all over the world sit in board meetings and determine what happens and are part of the process. I think it's a really great suggestion, and I'd love to see us move towards having fans, having equity in owning teams, but more importantly, having fans that have equity in soccer decisions in this country. And, and I think in this election right now, again, I'll go back to my opening statements, I give you credit for the sweat equity you're putting into it and the belief and the passion. That surplus is because of you guys, and you should have a voice. You should have a vote, and it should be a powerful one that determines, in part, who leads the soccer nation going forward? I want to go now to the game day experience. And we have a question from Steve from Hartford. And ask people, there is a lot of questions coming in. Uh, you're, you're very popular tonight. Do you think supporters, uh, and I'll include families in that, uh, ticket prices in excess of $75, is, is it too much to pay for a U.S. men's national team game, especially for being the point where we're at? And I will add, just how do you – plan to make the game and the game day experience more accessible to families and supporters? So it absolutely is too high, and the tickets actually are more expensive than that. There was a slide that U.S. Soccer um, presented recently um, at their board meeting that was basically demonstrating how they've been able to grow revenue by having games at smaller stadiums and raising ticket prices. And um, I'm really upset that they look at that and, and brag about that as a good strategic move. Now, again, this is another example, of, um, whether it be candidates that are in this election or, or current leadership, they continue to go to profit. You know, they talk about budget, and they talk about surplus, and they talk about ticket prices as, as, in a positive way. I look at our surplus as opportunity cost. I look at that huge surplus as fields not being built, as coaching license not being subsidized, as a good game not being subsidized, and as tickets not being subsidized, right? So uh, th this happens abroad, and fans are furious about it. So there are clubs and famous clubs that have raised their ticket prices to the point where they've killed the environment, and they've turned it into a corporate environment. That's not how you grow a soccer culture. How you grow a soccer culture is by realizing that this game is blue-collar. It's everyone's game. And you have to find ways to make it more inclusive in terms of participation, whether it be fans, coaches, referees. But fans run this game. It's not a game in an empty stadium. And recently, there's a couple of high-profile uh, situations in a way where famous teams had to play in closed-door games. I mean, the new camp doesn't look like anything. And, and Messi doesn't have the glow that, that we all know he has when there's no fans there rising on their feet when he pulls off that magic. So... Why would we create a barrier to entry for Latino communities and lower income communities that are around these stadiums that want to either contribute by participating with the American Outlaws or have their first taste of the beautiful game? And I'll tell you from, from experience, I, in 1994, I had already fallen in love with the game, but had never seen a live game before. My first live game that I ever saw was watching Roberto Baggio play for Italy right down the, the, the interstate, right down 95 from where I grew up in, in Giant Stadium. And that changed me forever. 
And so there are little kids out there whose parents can't afford to bring them to games or big kids that are on their own and for their own tickets that can't afford to these games. The fact that we're bragging about that as, as a way to create revenue, it just shows how to touch ship has become with its membership and its soccer culture. One criticism of Sunil Gulati is that he did not interact with fans and didn't seem to value them. And Justin Termka from Lincoln asked, what role do you see AO fulfilling if you were to become U.S. soccer president, and how would you engage the fans? Well, I, I, my whole presidency, and that's one of the reasons I didn't put my name on my website, um, is not about me. I think we've run into a big problem and we're at this very crucial moment and it's a seminal moment and honestly it's a gift we have an opportunity right now to to move in the direction we need to move but only if we have the humility from a leader to admit they're not the expert in all categories i'm not the expert on fan day experience i'm not going to pretend to be so instead of trying to pretend that i'm the expert in all these categories i'm going to enlist the help of people that are the experts and i consider the american outlaws and other fans that sit there on the game day and whether it's doing you know, spray painting TIFO the night before or, or f figuring out chance and getting coordinated and having chapters and organizing all of that. The mobilization of the fan group that, 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 that you have pulled off honestly is one of the best accomplishments, I think, in our soccer history. And what's happened is U.S. soccer, instead of wanting to facilitate that and fund it and ask what we can do for you, at times they climb in and become a competitor. And, and that's happened at the coaching level, at the youth level, at the refing level, and it's happened at the fan level. And I'll, I'll give you one, for instance, that really bothered me lately. Um, Barber, in an interview, gave Sunil Gulati credit for the, the growth and creation of the American Outlaws. And, and um, I'll be the one to say it. That's absolutely false. The U.S. has not done enough to help you guys grow. It at times is actually ignored and become an, a, a barrier to your ability to continue to grow, whether it be strategic alliances or support or funding to get you to stadiums, to keep you in stadiums, to fill stadiums with you. And I'll be a president that finally takes that barrier down and says, uh, I need to know how we make the game day experience better. And that's not going to be an informal way. I will have a fan representative on my advisory board that helps us understand how we continue to build off the incredible environments that you are creating and, and build your membership and find fans that are itching to fall in love with this game as other sports are either struggling to create a compelling argument to stay involved or pricing their fans out of their game. We're going to this the catch-all because our fans are the best in the world and, and you know you're the best fan group in the world when you have NFL fan, fans trying to mimic the things that you're doing. So uh, we are vanguards. We, we, we have a game that is the, the best experience to be at as a fan. And instead of the Federation being a competitor and, and a, an, an, a, uh, a barrier, it's going to be a facilitator. I just want to pause for a minute to welcome everyone who has just recently joined us. This is the presidential candidate forum for Kyle Martino. Again, if you have a question that you would like to post for Kyle, we're getting a lot of them in from people around the country, hit the Q&A box and submit it to all panelists. Make sure you include your name and the chapter that you represent. We have about 30 minutes left. 
and we're going to try and get to as many of your questions as we can. I want to go to accessibility, stay along line, and talk about the game in itself and soccer accessibility to fans. What specific plans do you have to increase soccer's accessibility to a majority of U.S. citizens? As fans? As, as players. Oh, so as players, um, this is the biggest problem we have. I, I honestly believe um, we, we have in two ways. One, we have, and Mia Hamm said this to me, so I'm not, I'm not going to pretend like this was my thought. She surprised me when she said it. We're talking about growing the game, about creating defined pathways and getting rid of market confusion. But she said, Kyle, all of these things are great, but I, I really want to bring to your attention an epidemic that's happening. And, and Mia Hamm, one of the greatest soccer players we ever produced and an idol of mine that I wanted to be like when I grew up, she, she is coaching under 12 girls in, in Southern California. And she said, the epidemic, Kyle, is that the kids aren't having fun anymore. So we've, we have professionalized the game at a youth level, and we have created such an enormous cost to play this game that it's pricing many out of, of the market. So um, that's the reason that our participation, if you look at the Aspen Institute study and others, is down 25% from last year. All sports are down in terms of participation, but we're the only one that's double digit. And our retention is awful. 50% of kids leave the game before the age of 10. So uh, we are failing the kids that even get into the system. Now, the kids that aren't getting into the system are the ones in these underserved communities who, who don't feel an affinity for the badge. They don't feel the membership offers them anything, and they don't feel that the Federation cares about them, and I don't blame them. And the, the, the uh, elite problem, and, and as you get up the pyramid where the Federation starts paying attention, I think Jonathan Gonzalez leaving to go play for Mexico is a perfect example of this is not, a, this is not an, ex, an exclusively a youth team problem. This happens all the way at the elite level, too, where we're just forgetting about kids that are going to contribute and show us the soccer nation that we can be. On paper, you could argue I'm the best player in this country born in 1981. Of course, that's false. There were players in New Rochelle, New York, and Bridgeport, Connecticut that were 10 times the player I was and would have been 10 times the player I became, but they were priced out of the game. So how do we fix that? Well, first off, we can use a lot of our surplus, our strategic partners, and other ways to generate revenue towards these financial aid programs. And Ed Foster Simeon with the U.S. Soccer Foundation, he's doing great things with private donors and public funding to go and build fields in inner city communities. They're everyone's game project, which I, 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 was, I was humbled, even though it wasn't you know, by design, but that they have the same slogan and pick the same slogan that I used for my campaign. This is everyone's game, but it doesn't feel like that yet. So what we need to do is we need to build more facilities in inner cities. We need to make the game cheaper. We, make, we need to offer more coaching. And here's how I'm going to do a lot of those things. Some of them are going to cost a lot of money. Some of them are going to take a lot of investment. And we have, with our surplus and other financial partners, the ability to get in there and subsidize the game at this level. Um, but one thing we can do that's a low-cost, high-impact project is my over-under campaign. And I built that with Steve Nash and, and um, Mia Hamm based on traveling around the world and in South America and uh, in Europe. Every time I'd see a basketball court, what's underneath the hoop? There's a soccer goal, right? So in New York City, there's 600 basketball courts, but almost 60 soccer fields. 
So it would cost close to a few million dollars to build one tiny field that might be 40 or 50 blocks away from some of these kids, so they still can't get there. But $2,000 a court, and now you have 1,200 dual sport courts that are soccer courts on the blocks of all of these kids that are the ones that can help grow a soccer culture and win us a World Cup one day. But we're not paying attention to them. And basketball is the perfect example. They are a sport where you can identify talent at Rucker Park. They have created a, a, a soccer culture. Now, part of that's or a basketball culture. Part of that's a paradigm shift that will take time. But if you look at the budget for U.S. soccer, it's clear what they think the priority is. And, and you can see it in all their statements. Everyone's talking about national team coaches. We don't have a, an important game that matters for another year. So, so right now, the fact that we're focusing on that is really upsetting me because we paid Jurgen Klinsmann in one year $3 million and determined he wasn't good enough. In 10 years, we spent the same amount of money, $3 million on financial aid. It's not good enough. It's embarrassing. And it just goes to show that we don't think that's how you grow a soccer culture. So there are many ways that we can go into these inner city communities and create not an elite structure, but an after school program and plug into municipalities and, and talk about architecture and design and futsal and these other things that create health, wellness and community for especially the Latino community where there's a predisposition for obesity. And these are, these are young kids that are looking for opportunity. And if you look at the Ballon d'Or list every year, it's littered with kids that are from these backgrounds, yet we're, we're ignoring them and forgetting that they are the ones that grow a soccer culture. And here's the next piece of that. Once we open up the gates to everyone, and once we make the game affordable, and we create pathways where we can identify kids in these communities so that they have an opportunity to climb the pyramid. If you fail, if you don't go up the pyramid and become an elite player as 99% of these kids, it's inevitable that's going to happen. You fall into a side category where that's where the youth game needs to bridge to the adult game and you become a player for life. And in every other country in the world, when you fall off the elite pyramid, you become a coach, you become a ref, you become an administrator, you become a fan, but you never stop playing the game. And that's where we're really getting it wrong. You grow a soccer culture first. The federation sits below the pyramid where the, the biggest part of the membership feels their presence. You grow the game in the inner city communities where we have dense populations of the greatest athletes and, and the players with the heart to win games in Trinidad Tobago and to do things that our national team recently has let us down. And as a player, it's hard to say, but I know the players admit that they have to take responsibility for performances that were not good enough. And these are the kids that we need on that field that are going to change this game, that we need in the stands that are going to support our team, that we need in our offices being administrators, that we need on our fields refereeing, that we need in the inner city communities coaching. And we're doing very little as a federation to make sure that that happens. So we're going to get into venue selection. This is obviously a topic that you have uh, made some waves on in the last couple of days. And we have a few questions from uh, Jordan Drew, uh, unattached, Keegan from Nashville, and Ed from Fresno. Okay. How will World Cup qualifiers be selected in the future? Are you in favor of a national stadium or stadiums? And how do you get more tickets into the hands of supporters and limit the opposition? It's a really good question. And, and I understand and appreciate that this is a very delicate um, discussion. And there will be people that disagree with me. And, and what we need to understand and really move towards is that this course is okay. And as a player, 
um, I will have some confirmation bias because playing in World Cup qualifiers, I see this differently than other people see it. So playing at Saprissa Stadium and honestly walking through riot police and having alarms pulled the night before and getting into that locker room and having plaster fall on my head because the fans are jumping and walking out on the field and having them boo during our national anthem. Our competitors do absolutely everything they can, including the, the millimeter size of the grass to make sure that they have a competitive advantage. So we need to make sure that we do for our team the same, give them the best competitive advantage that we can. Now, um, I understand that uh, fans may disagree with how, what, what impact that has and how important it is. This is not to excuse bad performances. The, the players are the ones that have to be held accountable when they don't perform. Um, but, but we can't create a, a, an Azteca because of the size of our country and the unique challenges we have. But that doesn't mean we can't create two, maybe three national stadiums that, that have the intimidating factor that we feel as national team players every time we go abroad. And I promise you the psychological impact of walking into Azteca or Saprissa, thank God they left that stadium because I tell you, the, the, the ghost of bad memories, it, it starts tapping you on the shoulder and, and whispering in your ear before you even get out on the field. Um, there's a reason that teams that quote unquote aren't as good at, as us on paper have a much better chance beating us when we go to their stadium. So um, the Columbus crew where Dosa Zero was born that we, we decided to play there for unique competitive reasons, not because we were sure it was going to be the, the biggest attendance and make the most money. So how we make these decisions is the most important thing. I, I, I will digress and, and concede that um, a lot of have good arguments why they should be able to see World Cup qualifiers in their backyard. And I totally appreciate that and need to be sensitive to it. But really what we're talking about, and the most important thing that we all have to agree upon is the way they've made decisions in the past is the wrong way to make decisions. And the, the coach of the national team, and in this case, Bruce Arena, who has played more World Cup qualifiers than any other coach, who is an expert in terms of helping us understand how we get that competitive advantage, he should not unilaterally be able to tell us where we play. But when he's asked, input should be important. And he, and he wasn't asked about Red Bull Arena. It was a decision that was made without him. And Bruce Arena said, that's a bad decision. We shouldn't play there. And U.S. soccer didn't listen to him. And I asked Bruce Arena directly, and he told me that. So that, that decision was made unilaterally by people who have never coached a World Cup qualifier, never played in a World Cup qualifier, and weren't making that decision based on competitive advantages. And that's not how decisions should be made about venues. And that, it, it will not happen again. So I want every fan to get the opportunity to see games that matter. World Cup qualifiers, as you guys know, I mean, the stakes are so high, and that atmosphere is incredible, and everyone should get a chance to experience that. And I don't want to be able to, uh, to mandate and, and create a policy that keeps opposition fans uh, from coming to the stadium. What I want to do is I want to create a soccer culture where our fans, of course, get an allotment, and that's fair. That's how it happens all over the world. And our fans take every single bit of that allotment and will travel absolutely anywhere, as you guys have started to do, the corners of the world, to support this team. So I want to grow that together with you and figure out what policies can we put in place to ensure that fans have an opportunity to be in that stadium, but most importantly, we have the best possible competitive advantage. Because if we're talking about process, if that's what you care about, 
Well, one decision for a World Cup qualifier can cost you hundreds of millions of dollars, and all you really gained out of that is maybe an extra million dollars of profit. So if that's what you care about, I can prove to you that that's a bad decision if you're a business person. So it's one of two things. Either the decision was making based on got to get that profit, or it, it, it's incompetent because you would never make these decisions if you asked people that understood competitive environments. And that's, that's my gripe is sure that the right people are involved in a democratic way on deciding where our national team plays in stadiums. And my hope is that one day we can create two, maybe three stadiums like Wembley, like Azteca, and, and say this right here is where we've, we've beaten Mexico, we've beaten Costa Rica. And you can remember, you can see the seat that you sat in. You can remember the song you sang, the shirt you wore, the scarf you held. I want those memories not only to build up our players, but intimidate our competition. We have a lot of questions coming in about the scouting network. And I know there was something that came out just a few hours ago about the fact that U.S. soccer only has one full-time scout uh, uh, under their employment. Jordan from Milwaukee and Tanya from Des Moines ask, uh, there's been a lot of talk about resources and scouting in the U.S. system. In addition to making the game accessible for players, how do we increase the scouting in such a large nation with so many players? Well, we stop pretending that we're the size of Oklahoma. So um, we keep using DOS Reboot and the, the way the German national team focused on their youth structure after their Euro failure. And um, we forget that they had already won a World Cup. We forget that soccer is the number one sport. We forget that they spent $2 billion on the problem. And we forget they're the size of Oklahoma. So um, they have 1,200 full-time coaches. They have 390 centers of excellence. We, we are not going to be able to do that overnight. And, and you know what? We may never get to that point. That, that, that should wake us up and say, stop pretending that we can be soccer nations. And, and, and that doesn't mean don't take best practices from these soccer nations, but it means how do we solve this problem because right now? Um, and from what I understand, there's about nine scouts. Um, if, if you look at the people that have full-time jobs to try and cover this globe and, and it doesn't matter if it's one, nine or 90, it's still not enough. So the way you solve this problem is by empowering the local associations Empower states instead of climbing into their space and encroaching on their territory and trying to tell them how to grow their game locally, how to coach their game locally, what to, what to charge their players. Um, we, we need to understand that it is important for our governing body to create as many national mandates as we can that improve the growth of this game and the quality of our training, um, but, but, not, but not in a vacuum. Every state looks different. Maine looks different from California, looks different from uh, um, Illinois, looks different from Connecticut. So what we need to do is go to these states, and, and they're doing this, U.S. Youth, U.S. Club, AYSO, and say, they're having early meetings and trying to solve a lot of these problems. But when the Federation isn't engaged and doesn't spearhead and take these, these discussions seriously and, and continually shirks its membership service responsibility, uh, these, these local associations, they stop believing that the Federation serves them. And the Federation stops believing that these, these local associations can contribute in identifying players. The way that we find stars right now, it, it, it's like a... It's like an astronomer uh, taking a telescope and not moving it. So we, we can't identify stars by creating these very tiny pools of identification camps and tournaments 
that is one way, but not the way. The way you identify stars is you should be able to see one playing on uh, on a blacktop in New York City, just like you can in basketball. See them playing for their local rec team. Clint Dempsey, by the way, one of the best players we've ever produced, when he was a teenager, was playing co-ed soccer in Agadosha, Texas, because his parents couldn't afford the premium to play for the Dallas Texans. We got him, and we still produced him. But that was luck. And and that that was despite our efforts. So there's a lot of competencies that we've lost. And I, this is where I disagree with Bruce Arena and others. There, there are many players that continually slip through the cracks. So how we solve this youth problem in terms of identification and scouting is we empower regional um, regional managers that oversee a scouting network that that is run by local efforts. It's run by the people that spend every day with these kids, not the people that just see them for a weekend or two a year. This is a question on program identity that comes from Eric from Nashville, and it is about jersey uh, identification. There are many fans who for years have been calling for U.S. soccer to establish one identity for the teams. Are you, opening, are you open to unifying U.S. soccer under one theme, i.e. a jersey that we wear in perpetuity? Um, so help me understand that question. Identity, do they mean playing identity? They mean – the actual jersey. So, for example, Brazil has the yellow shirt, okay. has the white shirt. Is there something that you would unite the United States under? Um, you know, here's a, here's here's one where I would say um, I, I, I would I would honestly take a consensus because I don't think my opinion should carry enough weight where I unilaterally make any decision. If you're asking my opinion, I I would say no because I think that having a an, an evolving jersey and look as ugly as it was that denim jersey is iconic right so um it does a few things one is it's a revenue stream listen this is a business and having a new jersey um it, it does create new revenue that can be fueled if it's fueled back into the system and invested in in youth initiatives and i'll tell you what people still wear that jersey to game so just because there's a new jersey doesn't mean you don't feel the identity and i was playing for the u.s team back when it was three you know, the youth team back when it was three stripes for Adidas. So I go back a long way. Um, but I just, I like and look forward to and enjoy a jersey and a new design. And I, and I like the evolution of the look of our team. But listen, I, I'm willing to understand, if enough fans disagree with me, why we should m move towards one look and, and stay traditional to that, like Germany does, like uh, – you know, like like uh, Brazil does, like Argentina does. But I'll tell you, they do tweak, right? There are tiny little variations to that traditional look. Um, so I, I think maybe there's a happy medium where we don't maybe go away from and reinvent our look every year, but have fun with evolving it just enough to have a new look, kind of like, the, you know, the, the new iPhone that they make you buy. <laughs> uh, ladies and gentlemen, we have about 15 minutes left. Again, if you have a question you want to post to Kyle, uh, hit the Q&A box, leave your name, your chapter, and your question, and we will try to get to them. Uh, we have a few questions left, and we have a few minutes left, so we're going to get right back into it. Uh, Kyle, this comes from Rodney from Kansas City, and he wants to know about the election process. How have you found it so far? And if elected, what steps would you take to improve it? Um, so let me take the, the last one first. The steps I'd take to improve it uh, is make it more transparent. I think you should be proud about who you support and who you nominate. 
and who you, who you vote for. So um, the, the lack of transparency in the election process, it, it, it is indicative of, of an inherent lack of transparency that's really harming our brand and it's harming the growth of our game and, and, it's, and it's stymieing a meritocracy that's based on performance. So, um, you know, there's a lot of talk about the president's position. And for a long time, we've been trying to make a full-time paid position. And one of the reasons that, that people want to do that is because it immediately creates transparency. We know what you're making. We know how we pay you. You can't profit off the office in any other way. Um, it creates a, a meritocracy where if you're not doing a good job, there are executives that are going to come away from their positions to challenge you. And having an unchallenged president should be a red flag in any country. Um, and, and, and lastly, it says it's your full-time responsibility to grow soccer in this country. And, you know, I know who Goodell is, not because I watch the NFL, just because he's selling me his sport and every single piece of media I pick up. If we think we gain market share on these organizations by having a president that can't speak publicly and doesn't want to get out there and get on the Today Show and get out there and go in the community and tell everyone why it's the greatest game on the planet, I think we're kidding ourselves. So there needs to be more transparency. There needs to be fan vote needs to be a bigger part of this. I think there are many more stakeholders and, and, and people that contribute to the growth of this game that do not have votes and need to be included in the election process. And we need to make sure that um, it, it is a fair and open election, and, and I think every candidate would echo my sentiment to say it doesn't feel like that. So that kind of goes to the first part of the question. This was a really, really big leap for me, um, and, and I think sometimes, uh, whether it's arguments with, with fans on Twitter or, or, or emotional statements I tend to make, one of the reasons I created such a bombshell with my recent statement is I'm not a controversial person. Um, I, I haven't built I a career. As the only American voice on the Premier League, I got there through merit, not by creating viral uh, videos or, or saying outlandish things. So when I say something, um, it's because I, it comes from my heart. It's because I've got information that makes me feel like it's time to say these things. Um, it was time to come into this election, even though it comes at great cost and, and, and stress on my family. But, but that's okay, because many people growing this game are doing the same thing. I'm not unique, and I don't deserve... Uh, any any more credit or or, uh, or or notoriety or support than, than anyone else, but all my other candidates have done the same thing, so they deserve credit as well. Uh, I've found this this process uh, discouraging at times when I've when I've when I've uncovered and and learned things of speculation that become fact and really worry you based on decisions that have been made that have affected the soccer country in a major way. Um, and, and at the same time, I've grown so encouraged to see how much everyone cares. The debate, you're, you, you getting involved, how many candidates are in this, um, the people that are willing to put themselves out there to help grow this game, the, um, the, the, um, the associations I speak to all the time, and I just came back from a dinner I, I, with an association right now, which is why I was out of breath when I, when I first sat down. I'm not in shape anymore. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm so encouraged and, and honestly optimistic that if we have the, the courage to elect the right leader, we truly can take this game back and set it on the right track. And, and, and I wasn't sure when I first got in this process, but I spend every day on the phone with the people that really grow this game and the people we should be thanking 
and they're the anonymous, nameless people that don't get to sit in the suites or don't get to uh, ride on the private jets. And, and, and these people are here to help. As, as much as we've mistreated them, they're the ones that we're going to call on, empower, and integrate to grow an amazing soccer country. So this, this game has grown so much. And the fans, and listen, as much as people criticize me for saying this, Sunil and Don and other people that um, deserve criticism at the same time, a lot of people have made big decisions that have moved this game forward, but we have got, we've gotten to a point where the echo chamber that some of these people are in has atrophied their, their perception and understanding of how you grow this game and who's important and how you serve the, 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 the consumer. And, and, and that is, is typified and it culminates with the failure of the men to qualify for the World Cup. That's not the problem. That is a symptom. And we need to start focusing on our women, on our men at the national team level, but we can walk and chew gum at the same time. The way we fix that up at the top is by starting at the bottom, as I said before. And um, I'm, I'm tired, but I, I, am, I am encouraged and I'm, and I'm ready to fight. And whether I went on story 10th or not, uh, my eyes are open. And um, I thought I was making a difference from my, my pulpit, from my position within NBC. And, and criticizing in the past U.S. soccer, and I'll give you one example, criticizing uh, uh, the structure where Jurgen Klinsmann was depending too much on a number two in Martin Vasquez that wasn't prepared to execute in the way that he needed to be, the way Yugi Love was able to. I need to point that out. And it wasn't because players told me that. I heard it from players because I saw it with my own eyes and I did my research. And when I went out that and I made that comment, U.S. soccer and they were furious, like they're furious with me right now because of the things I'm pointing out. And, and that was the last controversial thing I did. And banned me from being able to go to press conferences after that. And they changed their mind because they realized I'm not a controversial person. I don't make these accusations lightly. And what happened after I did that on set? Right before the World Cup, Jurgen Klinsmann ended up firing Martin Kapkes. Now, I don't believe for a second it's because of me. I will not have that inflated opinion. But I'm just going to prove that um, I was trying what I, could, what I could do. I was doing what I could from, from that podium and from that, that position in the studio. But why I'm asking is it's not enough anymore, and, and, I'm, and I'm here to help. I'm here to serve. Juan from AO Boise wants to talk about uh, the next men's national team coach and a future women's national team coach. Obviously, there is a hire to be made that will be made this year sometime. In the next coach – the men or the women, what sort of qualities are you looking for in how you conduct the search that's going on right now with the men's national team? Let me start with how I conduct the search because I think that's, that's, that's crucial. Um, how we've hired coaches in the past, and this is, another, this is not an accusation, this is fact. Um, it was done without the, the support of an advisory board. It was done without uh, technically capable people making these decisions, and it was done in a unilateral fashion uh, that I think is perfectly highlighted in the fact that there was a contract extension and a promotion given to a coach before World Cup when that never happens. It's like, it's like getting your diploma before, before your, your final. Um, so things like that happen because we hired coaches the wrong way. And um, that can't happen anymore. So what I'm going to do is hire a captain's council. And what the captain's council is going to do, it's going to be a very diverse group. Of, of technically capable people to help us make these decisions. And in this situation, I'd say we need a national team coach. Give me four names. 
Okay. And of course, I, I will I will express what I want to see in a coach, and I'll get to that in a second. But that, that's not the most important thing. Well, I want to know what they think we need in a national team coach, and who would fit the who would fit that that qualification. And I would take that list, and I would go with my relationships and connections, and reach out to these coaches and vet. So I, I'll give you an example. Um, doing an amazing job at Huddersfield. Uh, David Wagner, I reached out to his people and basically said, not interested. So why would we waste our time there? Another, another place where we waste our time is coaches that use us, even though they don't want the job, to leverage their ability to get a better job or a bigger contract with their current club. So you have to have people that have relationships that can see through these things uh, because it can be very detrimental to our, our, our national team. And it's what happened with Jurgen Klinsmann's um, renewal. We, we, were, we were confused and tricked into thinking there was an offer that wasn't there that inflated the, 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 the price he was able to get salary-wise, but also the, the, um, the anxiety that we were going to lose him and needed to do something that wasn't smart, which is giving him extension before a World Cup. And listen, that's not to say right, right decision, wrong decision long-term, but just you never do that in that situation. Um, so at this point... Let's say it takes us down to two or three coaches. Um, then I go back and say, here are the two or three people that are interested. And, and as a captain's counsel and advisory board, help me get it down to two people. Let's make it binary. And at that point, we can take it to a board. And as a president, and this is why you need a technical president that understands the game right now. This, this board right now, the U.S. Soccer Board, fell asleep at the wheel. And that's not my words. That's the words of one of the board members that said that to me when I talked to them on the phone. They admitted that, and I think that, that, that is clear, and, and they admit that by saying they needed to have a special meeting recently to find out how coaches were hired in the past, something that a lot of us outside of the, the U.S. soccer community uh, boardroom knew. So at that point, I would lobby and say this is the coach we need. This is the salary I think they should get. This is the contract I think they should get. But we have to, we have to do these things in a democratic way where we allow – a board that should be full of capable people to make these decisions for us. So ideally, that's how you do these things. What, what am I looking for in a coach? You don't have to be an American. Uh, does, does it help to understand our culture and our professional leagues and our, and our, our progression as a nation? It helps, but, but, but it is not a prerequisite. Um, so I'm looking for someone that can connect to our athletes, that can inspire, that has the technical nous to be able to not try to fit players to a system, but try to fit a system to players and understand that there are many great qualities about our country when we embrace the under, underdog role and don't try to be Spain or Brazil or Argentina overnight. So I'm looking for a coach that has, first and foremost, man management skills, because that above everything is the best quality of any coach I've ever had. But let me just add one thing that's specific to the women's game. One of the ways they've hired women's coaches uh, 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 women national team coaches in the past is they had a search committee full of capable people that could identify great coaches. And then they would bring these coaches in, these, these candidates, and when they sat them down for the interview process, before the discussion even started, before the interview process even started, um, Sunil Bilotti would say to them, this, this job only pays this much. And we all know now, looking at documents, it is well below what men are making. It's well below what the men's assistant is making. So we start off these interviews by offending and belittling 
these coaches that we need to lead our women forward and help them continue their success. So not only is the salary we're willing to offer them not enough to attract the best coaches from the college level. I mean, the Anson Dorrances of the world, uh, and this isn't Anson's words, this is mine just speculating. Why would they ever take a national team job when they have to take an enormous pay cut to have the honor to coach the national team? It's just backwards. So instead of paying one coach that didn't live up to the expectations $3 million, which was multiples, multiples of what the coach before him made on the men's side, let's, pay, let's find a coach that can achieve what he was able to achieve or didn't achieve at a lower rate and put some of that money towards hiring one of the best women's coaches we can find. So how we've gone about hiring coaches in the past is wrong. It's affected our country. It, it, it's led us to the point that we're at now, and it needs to change. We, we're almost out of time, and we're reached the end of our questioning, but I want to give you the floor for a brief elevator, 30-second speech, your closing statement to the, to the members of American Outlaws. I don't, you know I'm not going to be able to do 30 seconds, and I apologize <laughs> for monopolizing the time. Um, I don't have a producer in my ear telling me to wrap, but, but let, let me be brief. Um, I want to just echo what I said before. I, I mean it. I, I, one of my biggest regrets in my playing career, which was outside of my control, was not being able to play in front of you guys more often. Um, I, I, it's the one time I truly missed the game enough to have my, my eyes water. And um, I just, I really am so grateful for what you guys are doing for the game. And I want to repay that by being the president that this soccer country needs and seeing the importance and making sure that we work in a symbiotic way to grow this game together. Well, you know what, that's going to do it for tonight's presidential candidate forum. Uh, Kyle, we just want to thank you very much for joining us this evening, and we obviously we wish you the best uh, going forward in the race. We'd especially like to thank all of you out there, all members, because this is a cool event we get to do for you, and without your membership, this wouldn't be possible. So if you know someone who would be interested in having access to these forums or, or future forums that we're going to have, let them know how to get involved with AO. Tomorrow night, we will have our third presidential candidate forum featuring Eric Linalda, that will take place at the same time it was tonight, 8 p.m. on the East Coast, 5 p.m. in the West. So for Kyle and for all of us here at AO National, I am Donald Wine. We'll see you tomorrow, guys. Good night. Stub Hub at the end of January. Absolutely.